0: The other thing that we have to talk about in Jonet's storyline is the fact that the Mariner showed up. I initially wanted to cap all of the storylines that we had with action scenes because I think action is important to be a part of the world of Skyjacks. Even when we were going through these emotional explorations, I do want action to be there and I do want rolling to be involved in some way. I also kind of knew the resolution that would take place no matter what. Like, you know, there's a chance that the teacher Way could have died. There's a chance maybe that uh, Jonet could have maintained a mariner's mark, what have you. But like, I knew Jonet was going to rebuke the mariner uh, with the song I Am a Mountain because. I am a mountain is a result of a collaboration between Arnie Parrott and Tyler Davis that started back with our album. Like the two of them were talking about doing some kind of collaboration on music. I was all for it. You know, it depended on the budget, what have you. So I, I can't even remember if we, we hit the goal for that collaboration to definitively go through or not, but like, you know, that they kept me abreast of like ideas that they had and they had this Concept album that they wanted to do, um, or concept EP, where Johnnet, it's an alternate universe where Jonnet is a rapper from Chicago. And they did a couple tracks together on that. And I Am a Mountain is one of them. And they they shared it with me. And I was like, I would like to find a way to make this an essential part of the arc. Like I love the music that's here. I love kind of the declarations that are happening here. I love everything about the way that this is presented. I want this to be in the show. Even if it, even if like the core of this is like, oh, this is taking place in an alternate universe or whatever. Like it, these words have a place in this character's mouth. So like I knew that I am a mountain was the big climax of whatever confrontation with the Mariner. But the scenes that we ended up doing along the way as we were building to that action beat ended up taking much longer than i anticipated um because we went farther into detail like these were not indistinct things like in each one we kind of went on an emotional journey and learned something important and essential about these characters particularly uh Jonat like flashing back to the island and the first time that he he took a life with polaris like that was a lot longer and a lot more detailed and we made a lot more discoveries than i thought we would with it which are good things that I want to embrace, but also Lex is a busy person. It is hard to schedule everybody. And, and like Lex being on the East coast, Tyler being on the West coast, there's a huge time differential, other things. I felt bad about taking up this artist's time and like constantly asking for more time. I think I had scheduled originally three sessions with Lex, um, but Being like, I'm going to try and aim to do this in two. And we ended up needing to do all three. So I was like, asking for a fourth is just, it's too much. So when faced with it, when the Mariner had to come, uh, because I did want to address the Mariner's Mark. uh, The Mariner's Mark, you know, showed up, I think because of a luminary pull back in Nordia. It wasn't an overall plan that I had for the character. I like, yeah, I just, I didn't want it to be an overall pervading thing. And like, also like a lot of people talk about, uh, the Mariner being the be all end all of the setting. Um, and in certain ways, yes, the Mariner is an expression of a very particular type of colonial violence that is kind of the roiling threat behind all of the other types of colonial violence that we examine in the show. Like when you look at the economic damage done by the red feathers and, and taking resources or like the cultural damage done by the church of the slain God and, and things like that, like those are all bad, but like the force behind it is always kind of, we're just going to come and kill everybody and destroy everything that is beautiful here. Um And so yeah that makes the mariner a tremendously important uh villain and like something that you know should be fought against and whatnot and the circumstances in which the mariner has been faced up to like really throughout the podcast we've always seen a reduced version of the mariner first off in boujaneeth there was a spell purifying the water that was weakening, but not destroyed. So there's already that protection in place. We had uh, Traveler Quan there who knew how all of this stuff worked and was guiding Jonnet through it a little bit. And all that needed to be done was a, a ceremony needed to take place to, to you know, strengthen and reaffirm a protection that was kind of already there. So that wasn't a true confrontation. Then in Nordia, I had made sure that the landscape of Nordia would not allow a full fleet of drowned sailors up. Uh, more than that, everybody kind of like prepared for uh this. There there was advanced warning, and they had a lot of resources, so the mariner was not able to like appear full strength in Nordia, and also There was this cultural festival that happened to be happening at the same time that provided them a way to, like, use, you know, more than 300 years worth of, like, cultural power to banish him from this place. So, like, you know the mariner is fighting the mariner doesn't have the support and power that he normally draws on um there aren't really drowned sailors everywhere causing too much of a havoc because like they have partially like warned everybody there they have they're ferrying people to the uhuru so there are fewer opportunities for uh drowned sailors to do all this damage and like you know he sent one of his heralds up there and then shot himself into the herald and had to consume a lot of drowned sailors to like do a lot of the magic and things that he was doing ormar shows up unexpectedly um is getting uh support from his future self like things are happening to make this confrontation with the mariner there is a reason that that fight is won, um and i kind of i kind of stand behind that um Uh, Then here we are showing up in Teacher Way's pocket space, like this dreamlike area where the only connection that the Mariner really has to Jonnet is this faint thread of the Mariner's mark. Jonnet is like in the earliest and earliest stages of affliction with this curse at this point. Like, it, it it hasn't advanced. He's not getting, like, contacted by the sea or, or or called out or any of these things. Um, And also, the Mariner is currently engaged in an ancient deal between luminaries where the Forest Queen is acting as, like, a mediator between him and the Risalka that prevents him from going into this space. So the Hold... That the Mariner has on Jonnet in this instance is very, very light. It is, is very indistinct. The reason that he's reaching out and attacking right now is Jonnet is also in a place that could be very vulnerable. He is like deep in his psyche in kind of like this spiritual realm where, you know, there is a difference between punching someone in their body and like punching someone in their soul. And that's kind of what the Mariner was going after in this. But still, he's not able to bring a lot of power to bear there. So I was going to have a fight scene with uh, Teacher Way and Jonnet in the pocket space. um, But like we simply did not have time for it. And at the end of the day, I was kind of evaluating like all of this is kind of leading up to more character development for Jonnet. And I asked myself the question, is the Mariner at this point actually important to Jonat's story? Uh, You know, the thing that we found as we looked into Jonat's past through some of the world building and and talks that Tyler and I have had is he doesn't have a specific grudge against the Mariner. The Mariner is a bad force in the world, and that's bad, and Jonat is good, and therefore— Jonnett like kind of stands in opposition to that but like it's not like the Mariner killed his mom um it's not like it's not like there's a personal grudge between him and the Mariner because the Mariner took something from him Jonnett was kind of like in a position where like I'm powerful I have I have all of this potential I'm going to take a shot at the biggest thing that I can see and that's the Mariner so I was like well if the Mariner isn't super important to Jonat specifically at this juncture in his life then that kind of signals to me that like he doesn't even really deserve to have this hold on Jonat like we know these two are going to come to blows um but like it's it's not it's not out of revenge it's because it's the right thing to do that, that kind of led me like, well, let's, let's actually sever this personal connection, especially because we're talking about Jonnett's goals. And although Jonnett didn't like really define these goals and like, we are going to have to do that later on in another part of our story, um, separating Jonat from like, oh, the goal has to be that I need to separate myself from this thing that i did when i was young because i was trying to help people that doesn't feel like it is a useful part of this protagonist story like i genuinely and sincerely want none of jonat's hero's journey to be stuff that is forced on him like that is part of the classic hero's journey that you have the call to the the call to adventure that you like initially decline jonat sought out life as a corsair Jonnet joined the Uhuru on his own initiative. Jonnet saw a version of himself that was strong and cool, and he decided that he wanted to take the steps to do that, disconnected from everything else, including wanting to do something with that power, um... I think that is kind of a beautiful part of Jonet's story and I don't want to mire it in like classic tropes or whatever. So yeah. Did we have like someone who is a big bad of the setting kind of get banished without a single role? Absolutely. Um, part of that was a timing issue, but the other part of it is I think that makes a better story. Um, so yeah, that's Jonet and Way's part of this. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Travis and Oromar's part of this, because like so much cool stuff happened here. A really funny thing about this wing of the plot was how much stuff was completely unplanned. Uh, I had originally kind of wanted to have Travis's Travis's plot be flashbacks, kind of like what was happening with Gable and Jonnet. But... Uh, you know, so that we could get more of a relationship between him and Raul, so that uh, basically there was more narrative weight to everything that we were doing with it. But it ultimately became a lot more important to spend time with Travis and Orimar, And also, it took them a long time to really get spun up on actually what they were doing. I, I wanted to have this be a hunting in the woods kind of thing. Um, I I definitely wanted it to be in a naturalistic environment instead of an urban environment, because I think the expectation that Travis would have as a character is like, oh, yeah, I'm hunting down this, you know, former fellow con artist in an urban environment, because that's where kind of I'm, I'm used to operating and where I know I'm from. And like, it would be obvious, like how much had like changed for this person. Um, But we spent a lot of time between the metaphysician and the boat ride and uh, so many other things getting Travis to where he needed to be that we just didn't have time for a lot of Raul stuff, Uh, which I do feel bad about because I, you know, I was kind of excited to like learn more about Travis's past with a character other than Gable or Margaret for that matter. And I, you know, really just didn't end up with that opportunity. So I feel Raul got kind of underserved. Um, You know, we did have like that tiny snippet of a scene with Raul where we got to see there was almost a mirroring of personality between Raul and Travis. Like he was also sort of snarky and whatnot. Um, But I also kind of wanted it to be sort of a dark mirror to some of the things that Travis is dealing with, where you have this other changeling who has been around for so long and is kind of out of ways of dealing with it, who made more deals and more deals and tried to escape and whatnot and ended up getting all of his humanity stripped away from him. Um, Especially because Travis is now kind of coming into his own and like through this arc, especially as the changeling, Um, I wanted to make explicit, like the ways Travis could run his life differently, but how that would kind of necessitate embracing like things that he normally runs away from and how, you know, just being, uh, clever and tricky and all of these things was only going to get you so far in, in deals with this cosmic force. Like Raul, I, I think, got dealt a little bit short shrift, but I do think some of the thematic weight was still there. Um, it's just it's it's not what I would have wanted. And again, if we kind of had the longer sprawling plot that that I envisioned for this arc, you know, Gable could have been around. There could have been, you know, more dialogue about uh, Travis's past and whatnot. But what we did kind of get to do was focus on Travis and Orimar, and Orimar following Travis around on like something that Travis needed to do and getting to unpack his thought process a little bit. And we came down then to the bet which is something that I feel pretty contentious about. It is not something that I planned. um, Obviously, this is something that Nathan and Johnny came up with together and it was so cool. Like definitely having Travis, like have to gamble about gambling, a thing that he does all the time was really, really cool. A great way to challenge, uh, travis's ongoing sort of like character foibles the issue was i do think a bet about like hey don't bet anymore is a little bit too easy in a uh in a narrative context where there aren't other characters around really it was just travis and orimar who is travis going to gamble with so the It needed to extend beyond like just bets that Travis could have with people. However, I think the solution that I came up with for it was really inelegant and ill-defined. We didn't get a lot of time to talk through, okay, this is what the mechanics for this situation should be because that will be interesting and compelling. We were really already pretty short on time, so we kind of had to skip over it and I don't think anybody really knew the rules um, by the end of it, including the audience, uh, which makes it one of the weaker parts of the arc. Though, I think it will yield interesting fruit, even though, if if I could, the way that we got there, I would probably redo. But yeah, like, we we also got to see a lot of cool transformation stuff, and I, I think it was just... The audience definitely picked up on it. There was a cool energy between Travis and Orimar and kind of how their relationship is developing uh, that I think is really neat and that I'm very much looking forward to uh, coming to fruition in future arcs. Then uh, we get to Gable's plot. Gable's plot, very simple. I had planned this on being a group adventure I wanted Gable to be going really with the, the main cast of characters on an adventure to get an angel feather. Um, obviously the structure of this arc had to change that um, and change it like relatively quickly. And it could suddenly involve no other main characters. So Liz actually in kind of uh an unusual way arrived at the solution for me. Like I knew that Gable would be going on this adventure and like kind of dealing with uh, the past at the same time. Um, And we had this interaction between Gable and Nodos because like I needed some character to wake gable up and i was playing more you know with this like little ship trope uh that that we were running with with nodos having this big hilarious crush on his big hilarious friend then liz did the thing that i did not expect and directly called it out was directly like hey i can tell that you're into me and i don't know that i can do this right now and I you know, I just wanted to have my fun with shipping. I just wanted like there to be one character kind of pining um in the background because I think it is both fun and very funny. It is very funny to have like a cool, tough pirate who speaks like a haunted butler, um as j p c put it, like uh just being in the background. Uh, writing like names and notebooks and stuff like that. I think it's adorable. Um, but Liz is like, you know, no, there's gonna be character development around this. Uh, and calls it out, and so I was like, okay, well now, Nodos and Gable and Wendell are in this together because like these are also like two characters that we had established as like gable's kind of buddies this is gable's running crew they do risky things together they were the boarding party um public for the civility um so i wanted to do more about them especially because in the silver bullet arc we had kind of established that wendell is probably going to be moving on soon from the uhuru um and I, I like Wendell uh, and I like these characters together. And so I wanted to I- explore a little bit of that. And now, like out in the open, kind of explore a little bit of Nodo's and Gable um, because like the issue had been forced in a way. So we had like the treasure that they were after, which was just an angel feather and i had to come up with a reason that like an angel feather hadn't been claimed yet and so it was like yeah it is at the bottom of a deep well um and initially i was like well that just means that it is too deep for anybody to really dive down and like they don't have a lot of assisted diving equipment in this setting and like it can even be so deep that if you were to like Do like a a bell and helmet uh, kind of uh, diving situation that like air wouldn't be able to circulate quickly enough, like and maybe too tight to get a bunch of machinery in it. Like, so, yeah, I was like, these are in these caves, these mysterious caves, which we barely got to explore, which was such a cool part of the Domignon setting. But like we just didn't have time for it. So, like, I wanted to show off a little bit. Uh, You know, he came up with a bioluminescent rope that needs to eat blood. And like, you got to show off an idea like that. That's so cool. Um, And came up with the treasure caverns and whatnot. So I was like, okay, we're still going to do this. We're still going to have a journey through the treasure caverns. It's going to be abridged and it's going to kind of be this buddy thing. And I had for a while wanted to talk a little bit about, processing um, disability and pain and recovery through Wendell. Wendell being a character who, like, you know, gets a miraculous treatment that you can kind of point to Dreffs necromancy as, like, oh, this is a way of erasing disability from Skyjacks because, like, you know, if 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 this were the real pirate world, you know, they would have had to, like, amputate Wendell's arm to prevent like it from getting infected and killing him. Um, But you know, this is a world with magic and magical healing partially because magical healing just makes it convenient that you can have characters who can get into dangerous situations and have bad things happen, but also continue playing with them next week. Um, It's, (laughs) it's important that that exists. So we are hand-waving violence and injury somewhat because that is kind of what the convenience of like adventure and actual play like asks you to do. Like, even if you look at something like our flag means death, like there's so much stabbing in that show that would absolutely kill these characters. And they just don't address it. It's like a character gets stabbed one episode and the following episode, they're fine. And that's good. Actually. I I think you shouldn't always be looking at that, but with Wendell, we did have this opportunity to show like like well, we do have this magical healing, and Wendell is very lucky and even feels very lucky, it's still hard to recover, and like he can't feel his arm, his arm is stronger than it ever than it ever has been, and he can't control it, and that kind of mirrors the way that he sees himself, you know he is like this person who is a wild pirate who likes to get in dangerous fights and take big risks. And that's kind of all he has ever seen himself as. And in retiring in like going to, you know, live his life with his spouses, his role is not that anymore. Um, so if like you'd see yourself as a being meant for violence and made for peace and that fundamentally can't be controlled and is too strong and does unintentional damage like that's really hard um so i wanted to really investigate that um i had originally envisioned wendell getting up in front of the grand fire and talking about it but in writing it out i just didn't feel like it didn't feel authentic enough to me um I, I have very limited experience with injury and recovery. Like, I have, uh, in my parkour days, suffered injuries that have left me less capable um, than than I would be without those injuries. However, like, that capability is, you know, it's not a day-to-day concern for me. Um, so it was harder to write that from a, a truly authentic place. But now having this thematic connection, especially, like, Wendell is planning on leaving piracy and he's not going to be around all of this wild violence anymore. And like for his honey, for for, for his not honeymoon, for his bachelor party, he had elected to go hunt Leviathan, which is an incredibly dangerous thing that you probably like, there is a reasonable chance that you're not coming back from. Um, That suggested to me that like, wow, this character is taking a lot of risks before this big, important event that is very calm. Why is he doing that? So it became that, like, yeah, searching for this, this thing that is this feather is going to be Wendell's idea. And Wendell is the driving force. And Gable and Nodo's are kind of getting dragged along. And I was able then to like really solidify, well, what is this treasure? What is this angel feather? Why do people uh keep going after it uh you know even if they don't really have a new approach or a real chance of grabbing it and the thing is that the the actual treasure is weirdly sort of the friends you find along the way in that it it is this thing that calls to you at the bottom of this well and You either dive in and swim down for it and keep swimming until you drown or you turn back at some point, whether that be after you've already dived in or something else. And, like, what the treasure actually is is that while you are, you know, facing that possibility or indeed swimming down towards it it it, in a place that, like, I don't know how magical it is, but, like you can be much deeper um, than you think you are as you are swimming after this prize. So like it is hard to gauge what is safe and what, when and whether or not you'd be able to turn back those sorts of things. Um, uh, like the treasure is having the realization that you have things to live for, um, that, that are more important than like some kind of treasure or glory. So like, Wendell like kind of catches wind of that. And it's like, this is sort of a chance for me to test. Like if I am just someone who is unfit to live a peaceful life and would present more of a danger to the people that I love than, um, than a good partner and like asset, is it better if I just am not part of that and don't disappoint anyone and I die trying to claim treasure as part of the Uhuru crew. So those people that I love are going to be cared for and whatnot. You know, they're like, they're they're tough thoughts that, you know, Wendell is not really talking to anyone about. And he decides like the catalyst of it is going to be, is going to be this quest. Um, And so then I have uh, Nodo's who is, you know, dealing with these feelings and like i think if you've ever had a crush sometimes the important thing about a crush is that it's private and is that it's a fantasy it's a thing that like you think about oh wouldn't it be nice but like part of it is it's important to you that you never act on it because you don't want to disrupt or threaten the stability of the life that you are living with this person you don't want to disrupt the the life or stability that that you are living with this person that you have uh the crush on so you're like i have these feelings you know, they they do come up occasionally, but I'm trying to not let them get in the way. Um, and I figure, you know, what we can have is a nodos coming to this room in this situation and actually being like, well, you know what? I really do need to confront these feelings because like we live in a way where people can die and maybe I just need to call them out in the open and leave them be after having said my piece. Um, or, you know, maybe something can come of this, what what have you. Like, I felt like this challenge, this treasure was a really good catalyst for that character to sort through those feelings um, because, again, the issue got forced. Like, that conversation needs to happen now um, because it has been called out into the open. We can't just do the sitcom thing where people pretend they didn't hear the very obvious thing that they heard. And having Wendell both like sweep them both up into a position where they can't really talk about it because they're trying to be there for their friend is kind of a perfect way to extend it and let the story kind of happen on its own at its own pace. Meanwhile, you have Gable, who literally cannot be destroyed by drowning. We have established that, that they are are immortal in that sense in that like they can drown time and time again um as they did the 10 times after they fell from the sky we we know that so no matter what no matter how far it is gable's kind of going to be able to claim this feather and i had originally thought it would be cool rather than intersperse these flashbacks through the arc for gable to dive into the water and for that to have the entire uh Starcrossed like segment of this arc take place after that dive and just kind of take over the show for a little bit. Ultimately though, like I think I had mentioned that like, oh, Gable did remember everything from the Starcross thing beforehand. Like there was a line that made that approach to it hard to justify. Like we would have had to cut that and also um god what was the other thing oh yeah like i i felt like if it took over the show too much it might feel less fun there were a lot of because Starcross is a thing that happens scene by scene it like paces itself in an interesting way and like it, it is strong enough to split up is maybe even stronger splitting up because you do get a bunch of mini cliffhangers um throughout so ultimately like Instead of just, yeah, plunging into the water is the time, like, the whole time Gable is going on this fun friend adventure, they are also kind of unpacking, uh, they're, they are also kind of unpacking, like, this cosmic relationship baggage that they're dealing with. And beginning to understand the next essential thing about the story, which kind of, about their story, which kind of overrode what was, what I wanted this arc to be, um, I wanted originally, like, able to, like, have to confront the fact that, like, yeah, wow, people had to make a lot of... People had to make a lot of adjustments and allowances to their life here because the stars fell. And to play on the guilt aspect of that before we did the Star-Crossed flashback so that, like, we got to see Gable wallow a little bit in the feeling of I ruined the world. Instead, we managed to compress that uh, without really looking too much about how the world was affected. We just got to know that Gable has been silently feeling that and for goodness knows how long but you know definitely um post nordia like where where they know for sure that they slew the sovereign like that has been bouncing around and i think liz even said on air like it's a thing that is like too cosmic to reconcile like i killed god how i eat oatmeal for breakfast like yeah we know that they've been carrying that weight but like we learn we learn through the star-crossed arc or the, the star-crossed portion that, like, they had reasons for slaying the Sovereign. And although it wasn't at the time, like, those reasons affected the way that Sovereign the Sovereign treated humanity and, you know, what, what was certainly the focus, the way that the Sovereign treated The angels, Um, it was all not good that, you know, even though the world suffered a lot after the sovereign fell under the sovereign's rule, the world was suffering anyway. Gable was commanded to commit these like atrocities in the name of the sovereign's justice and like the justices for what? This is the same being that created angels as beings who are capable of love and then commanded them not to feel it. Um, and punished them for it so it's uh like gable is sort of unwinding that like yes my actions did things that like left a dramatic impact on this world but also knowing the reason behind those actions and in the ways that they were kind of justified um there's there is a lot to all of that um that that, that gable is going on um and I felt that like this little portion of the arc, I was really, really happy with. I loved Wendell's portion. I loved Nodos' portion. I loved Gable's journey throughout it. It was funny, um, and lighthearted. It had that amazing like blood sellers scene, uh, and you know it uh, catalyzed itself in like this amazing emotional climax of. Gable diving in and Nodo's telling them to be careful. Um, And Gable also saying that, like, hey, I I can't do this right now, but I want to be the type of person who can. Um, Like, a really, really cool moment, Uh, which brings us to something that was brought on by sort of, like, overarching necessities one of the things that made us cut this arc short and we'll we'll address it in in future arcs like you will see why this arc had to be cut short but it did mean more information had to to flow out of this arc uh in order to accommodate that pacing uh which is why rusalka showed up um why rusalka appeared in front of everybody and talked and let out a little bit of exposition that that taught us some very essential things This was partially initiated by Travis um, having the unexpected scene with the Morrigan in Ungoni and learning a little bit about himself and that uh, the story of the Changeling is broken. And I had decided this a long time ago, and I really, really wanted to bring into the plot that, like, the story of the changeling is broken because it's not supposed to be a tragic story. Like, part of this, there is a thematic t- connection to a lot of, and the Decembers are drawing in a lot of different places to, to tell, uh, the story of hazards of love. So I don't want to pigeonhole them and say that like, oh, this is the one influence, but Tamlin is a big influence for, um, the hazards of love. And that is a story fundamentally where, uh, human confronts the supernatural horror, of like the fey world and wins you know and and love wins um for those who don't know like the forest queen holds like uh somebody in in their power and a woman basically is like no i love this person i i want to be with this person and the forest queen's like well if you can hold on to them you will keep them and transforms Uh, their love into like all of these terrible things that is like very painful and very difficult but she holds on through the whole affair and in the end wins over the forest queen and and love and like I think it's the fairy queen or whatever but the point is like it is a story that fundamentally is about love and also you know I'm thinking about this folktale world and like kind of origin myths and the fact that the forest queen being a luminary and being an essential part of this world having a relationship with the sovereign and all of that that there should be kind of a more naturalistic story especially because the forest queen is a being that outside of skyjacks would primarily be representing nature right um and you know Only one of her themes in the luminary deck is nature. The rest is kind of attached to the story of hazards of love, um, which is telling something that like contravenes nature in a way, because hazards of love is like about a jealous mother who doesn't want her child uh, to move on and have a life of his own and destroys the child and the love that he has. And it's it's tragic. And it's tragic because that's not how the world is supposed to work. You're supposed to like empower your children to grow up and not like expect them to bend to your will. So it was like fundamentally there is something broken about this story. And I kind of thought about natural cycles and the the nature of like the maiden mother and crone, um, in like stories about witchcraft and whatnot. And it ultimately led me to believe that like, yeah, what we have here is a story that naturally should be about the relationship between humanity and nature. Though it is kind of like complicated and fraught, the the relationship between humanity and like human civilization and how that is a fundamental part of our place in the world like and and we still have like stepping outside of nature, stepping into a supernatural world where you've got an abandoned child who, instead of dying the way an abandoned child would, is adopted by a supernatural force and given freedom from. yes yes falcon yes given freedom from some of the the natural the dangers of the natural world like he doesn't get sick he doesn't age uh he he doesn't have to get involved in conflicts all of that is is part of this and part of like the queen sort of doing this you know we don't get a, a super clear motivation in I'm just, I've been trying to avoid the baby sounds and I got, I think I got to embrace them at a certain point because, because we're not, we're not going to be without them. Um, yes, yes, Falcon, yes, eat daddy's hand. (laughs) So so, so there's, there's that aspect, like, like the forest queen takes on uh, this child and makes them the changeling. And then the Maiden comes along when when the Changeling is... Wow, you're making this real hard, Falcon. The Maiden comes along when the Changeling is an adult and kind of like ready to experience love and be a person. Um, How like even if you strip away the threats that humanity faces and that other living beings face, like you can't... You can't strip away the the desire for a, a human being's desire for connection and like, you know, just having a family in a lot of ways isn't enough. Even if you're asexual, even if you're aromantic, you still have connections to other people and those are important and sacred. Um, so like, yeah. Even if you remove someone from the world of humanity and, like, give them a life that is more peaceful and less challenged, eventually they do need connections with other people. That's where the maiden comes in. The maiden enters the changeling's life through an act of kindness, like a, just random kindness. The changeling is suffering. But although the human world presents all of these threats and there are challenges out, outside of, like, the environment created by this very safe family unit that there is still kindness in that world and it is worth being connected to that kindness and and the maiden is like worthy of entering this protected world because of that kindness and also like nature kind of being an essential theme that we want to be picked up in all of this nature happens in cycles um, so, it kind of made sense that like the forest queen, a living being that like has thoughts and a personality and opinions, would be something that is literally representative of the marriage between humanity and nature, um imposing like kind of our ideas and values on nature and the way nature kind of nurtures us nurtures us and all of that. So the idea of the true cycle of the forest queen. Uh, and the changeling being the forest queen saves a changeling, raises the changeling, the changeling eventually marries uh, a the maiden, and they have a child, and that child event the child is kind of the godhood that belongs to the forest queen. so like it also kind of ensures that the power of the forest queen is is rooted in the essential kindness but like Skyjax is a world of like broken stories and compelling stories and shifting stories and changing stories so obviously that can be manipulated and the sort of dark changeling's tale that is at the center of hazards of love and that inspired travis's story is the broken story is the unnatural one is one where like selfishness uh kind of overwhelms the whole situation and it creates another story that like is important talks about like overbearing uh you know feeling like you deserve somebody else to control somebody else's life and that they should live to your accord and and the danger that it presents to everybody involved in that situation but that also really disconnects it from stories about the normal cycle of nature um so I I really like the idea of broken stories the idea of changing stories and kind of how that overall bridges the gap for for the forest queen as a, a figure and a luminary and you know ties into how the mechanics of the world work and how they depend on stories and and shift with stories um I I think it's really cool, and I've been so excited for people to discover that as, like, the plot sort of coincides more with, like, luminaries and, and, you know, almost like luminary hacking, how people have taken advantage of, like, these fundamental principles of the world of Sphere in different ways, and sort of how, you know, Travis as a main character has been a victim of that, but kind of has the opportunity to own it in a way and, you know, forge his own destiny. Um, So, you know, I I have been excited to, like, I've been excited about it for a long time, but I really, uh, because of the thing that happened with the Morrigan, I've been excited that that little detail was out there and I wanted to expand on it. But like, obviously, I, I think it is important in, a lot of fiction, especially serialized fiction like this, when you have earth-shattering revelations that characters get time to absorb them. If you move from one revelation to another, I I think it starts to lose meaning and lose impact because the characters never get a chance to regulate, never get a chance to decide and reinforce who they are. Um, So, yeah, I've been looking forward to that and, like, because of our timeline shift and all of that it became necessary to get more of that information out there now so that characters would be able to make decisions about it and act on it and have conversations around it um so i was happy with that i was also happy like we got so much information about gable and their relationship with the morning star and you know the the things that prompted them to slay the sovereign um it was also kind of important to like build on more of the mythology because like very, very early on I had decided that Rusalka was a fallen and like, I, I really tied that very tightly into the core mythology of the world in ways that like probably, you know, will never be explained to anybody but me or, you know, and maybe behind the scenes discussions long after all of this is over. Um, but like yeah i i was thinking about fallen as figures and you know where they went especially with gable being immortal um you know if there are other beings out there like gable why haven't we seen more of them and you know liz was pretty firm and like you know being isolated and the starfall representing like thousands of angels falling from heaven like had to had to figure out why they aren't present um you know and it's easy to figure out why beings would be in hiding but like even then you can run into beings in hiding like there's a reason that gable and travis continually ran into each other over and over again over 200 years it's just you kind of if you're hiding you you fall into places and you probably find folks who are similar uh to you and so we had to work on those different explanations and part of it is you know the Rasalka being a fallen that happened before the fall of the stars found a different niche and like obviously uh focused on building a place for herself in sphere that like made her into a luminary um and i think her story is interesting and and compelling you know being a being who like was cast down for an act of mercy in defiance of the sovereign's will and then spent a lot of time on sphere itself like exploring wrath um but wrath according to themselves i, I think it's an interesting juxtaposition because you know gable also an angel of justice um and is also kind of figuring out what morality even is um and you know is up against this big challenge and like yeah is arguably very justified um not even arguably i think personally me it's justified to slay the sovereign um because of what the sovereign was and and how the sovereign behaved um but like that caused a bunch of unintended problems and consequences and and gable is like sorting through those and like being an angel a being that is compelled to both mercy and justice being pushed in those directions and having to decide for themselves what those things mean like i think it is interesting to have rusalka be there as like a being that has decided and maybe in ways that that gable doesn't necessarily approve of or agree with um you know also comes up to like the deal that rusalka offered gable that gable did not take and i was frankly very surprised that gable didn't take it i had like kind of planned that that was going to happen but like you know uh, players make decisions, and that is one of the things that is wonderful about RPGs. Um, so so that was really interesting. Um, yeah, but this is also an area where we hit a time crunch because I did kind of want to have a melee on the beach, a showdown with the cutting stone, but it it just didn't make sense. Like, I love having action as kind of a a, a visceral expression of emotion the the nordia fight for instance being this like release of all the anxiety and like kind of climax and compounding of all the anxiety that is built around that arc um the um fight uh with er, Gosh, what, what am I? The silver bullet arc, the, the the fight there, like there being elements of like paranoia and betrayal that are running as undercurrents for that. Obviously, like the uh, joust with uh, Tiberius, you know, resolving all of the anger and frustration that came out of Dreth's death. Like, I think combat in RPGs is great and an actual play is great and can be great. Um, I think it needs to really be supporting something. Um, I, I think of like martial arts films and action films almost the same way I think of musicals, where in a musical a song happens because there's so much emotion pressing down in a particular moment, there is no way that it can move forward without expressing itself in song. All those songs mean something. They're they there to tell you something about the story, the characters, where they are in their emotional journey. I think of fights the same way. Um, And that's how I prefer they be used. And that means they need time to breathe. That means they need time to unfold in interesting ways. Like a song in a musical has to be an interesting piece in and of itself. Like the best songs are the ones that you can listen to in the soundtrack outside of the sequence sequence of events and still like have a good time jamming out to them. And that's also how I I think of combat. And if it can't do that, if it does not serve those purposes, then I think it is, it it feels empty and like, I I don't want to do it. I would much rather move past it. And. You know, we just we did not have time for Jonnet to to really face the mariner alongside Way. We didn't have time for everybody there to like square off against the cutting stone. Um, so instead we kind of skipped past those because like we are we are looking towards other action beats that that will serve other better purposes. And I'm okay with that. Um, you know, I, I think I did see some, uh, folks in the audience talking about how they would have preferred, um, the action to be run differently, differently right there. It's just, that's, that's not at all what I am interested in doing. Um, I, I don't, I don't think it's dynamic, fun, or cool. Um, and like the stakes are almost pretend in my mind, uh, like in, in that way, um, because, you know, we 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 know the results of certain things like it is insane for me with the stories that we're telling to have a character die because of bad luck in a role and also genesis frankly as a system does not work that way um so it, it, like the combat just for combat's sake isn't really doing anything and is it really going anywhere um I, I think like the moment actually with polaris uh and jon like uh, striking down Polaris on the beach in that flashback that to me even though it's a scene that like we're in the future this is in the past we absolutely know what happens we know Jonet doesn't die on that beach um, we know that Polaris goes down because it's a memory of Jonet killing someone for the first time um, that is more interesting to me than any random combat scene set in the present where the stakes might be life or death because you know they're frankly not and they got no fucking teeth i don't know Uh, and and i think that is different um i think for me and the way i view actual play than a lot of other people but uh it's core to my philosophy um so yeah uh like I, i think overall this arc felt really good to me there were so many really cool moments um that after editing you definitely saw more of the strength of these things than like the weakness of things that like, I wish we'd done or wish we'd gotten to, you know, overall, I think Dumignon was such a cool location and I really wish we had been able to, to sink in more. But I also think the the way in which we expedited things, like I think it also still resulted in strong narrative that, that I feel very good about. Um, and I think it tied together so well. I loved all of the music in this arc. I loved the way that it it drove and and reflected the plot. Um I loved all of Casey's editing on this arc. I, I think you know it shines through stronger than ever, like why Casey is such a talented um and skilled editor, the way that he makes his voice heard through editing and enhances everything that's happening in the narrative through his editing um it yeah it 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 turned out really well even though it was a massive logistical problem like on the production editorial side i will let you know that because everything had to be recorded this way in like separate instances and we weren't just handing casey chronological audio uh this arc was a much bigger challenge we had to get uh Our normal pass for things is audio will go to Joe, um, who, you know, if you've watched one-shot streams in the past, you're familiar with Joe, um, usually runs like uh, the production board, did it all for like the whole run of TPK and all of that. Um, Joe does a edit that removes a lot of background noise and creates a much cleaner sound for everyone. And in many cases will align the tracks for Casey Um, Then in normal circumstances, it it gets passed right to Casey. In these circumstances, because audio and sequences of the show had to be aligned, it first went to Tracy, um, who is our project manager over at OneShot. Um, who has been, you know, really stepping in and making sure that one shot the podcast is is running while I am on paternity leave or on partial paternity leave, still working, um, but uh, you know, mo- mostly uh, looking after the baby. Um, Tracy would help, would work with Casey to make sure scenes were aligned. And because music played such a huge role, then uh, there had to be extra coordination with Arnie to make sure tracks were ready. And there had to be coordination between both Arnie and Tyler, who were, you know, creating a more complete version of the song that they had worked on together uh, for air and also arnie and lex who arnie was you know working with lex on the music that actually went into the final episodes of skyjacks um to make sure they, they fit the sound and feel of the world so there's a lot of communication a lot of coordination more so than any arc that we've done to date um it was a big challenge that could have gone many different ways and i think it went in a really good direction i'm, I'm very proud of it and and happy with it and like it feels a little ridiculous now to be sitting here in the future even though there were challenges uh associated with this arc and like so much other stuff that i was thinking about that was actually like working against the arc it it came together very well and i'm so proud of it so welcome to character creation cast a show where we create and discuss characters the best part of role-playing games with guests using their favorite systems. I'm one of your hosts, Ryan Bolter. And I'm your other host, Amelia Antrim. Join us as we sit down with game designers, podcasters, and fans of games as we dive into learning about different RPGs through the lens of character creation. It's a combination of character building, player advice, game design insights, and even a little bit of fan fiction for a different game every month. We tackle a variety of new and old games, both well-known and indie-produced titles. We learn how creating characters can tell us a lot about the games themselves. Check us out today anywhere you can get podcasts or on the OneShot Podcast Network at OneShotPodcast.com.